BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ah, the sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the TakeCast. My name is Davis Maddock. You guys can find me on Twitter at Davis Maddock. In this episode of the show, I'm joined by Ryan O'Hanlon from ESPN. Uh, ESPN Soccer, powered by ESPN FC, as a matter of fact. He is also the author of Net Gains, Inside the Beautiful Games Analytics Revolution. There is a link to purchase that book in the description of this podcast. Uh, of course, wanted to have Ryan on because I am a, a longtime reader and listener of his work, and I found the book pretty enjoyable. Obviously, uh, you know, throughout the, the hour-long or so conversation, we, we touch on a lot of topics that are discussed in the book, but uh, honestly, not too many spoilers, not too much discussion of, you know, actual anecdotes and stories. So I think the book is very worth reading, and I found it, Ryan, to be a very enjoyable conversation. So hope you guys enjoy it. If you want to support this show, you can subscribe to bonus episodes on patreon.com slash takecast. You can leave a rating or review of the show wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can just tell a friend about the program. Now, let's go ahead and get into the episode. All right, everyone, welcoming in to the program, Ryan O'Hanlon from ESPN. I guess it used to be called ESPN FC. I think they just call it ESPN straight up now. Is that is that true, or is it still ESPN <laughs> FC? It's actually... Uh, stupider than that um it's now just like the soccer it's it's like the soccer page in the same way we have like an espn nba, NBA. page and nfl page but it says powered by espn fc on the that on is the page. so that is i don't yeah i i can't explain it to you so well, you know corporate corporate rebranding well like, yeah. eventually the powered by uh powered by espn fc will be dropped so ryan wrote a new book uh, titled Net Gains. There will be a link to purchase that book in the description of this show. I've read it. It is sitting on my desk right now. You guys know, listeners of the show know I love a good soccer book and uh, and love to indulgently then invite the authors onto this program to uh, to pick their brains about it. So I think that's actually a great place to start. Uh, I've had Jonathan Wilson, Michael Cox, um, Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Clegg, and John Robinson on this program. Lots of people have written lots of books about soccer and there are a lot of great books about both like the history of the business of soccer because it's it's one of the biggest businesses on earth right and there's also a lot of great books about tactics and like how the players arrange themselves on the pitch but there really is not a seminal work on what is kind of the biggest driver of both those things both the business side and how these players are are playing on the pitch i.e analytics so I mean, where did, where did the idea come from? Where, where, like, what, at what point did you decide that's a story that needs to be told? Yeah. So I, uh, before I started working for ESPN.com slash soccer powered by ESPN FC, um, <laughs> I, uh, was an editor at the ringer. And then I was an editor at this, I I sheepishly bring up this site Grantland because like some people I tell oh, them that imagine not knowing they have that, but then other people don't know it, you know. So like I, my go to mode is like, uh, you know, I used to work for this site called Grantland, and then people either think I'm an asshole being like sheepish about that, or they don't know the site. Um, but so I worked at both of those sites, and I was an editor. I also wrote about soccer and did did soccer podcasting while I was at both of those sites. But, you know, I'm an editor, so I'm doing doing NBA, NFL 
MLB stuff, right? Um, and all the writing in those sports, uh, the all best analytics. writing. It's like a combo of the two, right? It's like very good writing, but it's the, the you're just sprinkling in sort of numbers throughout, basically, right? It's like it's a given that you're going to be having some kind of evidence um, behind your argument, um, statistical based evidence, I guess, right? Um, and in all those sports, it's different. It's different, right? The degree in which you have to use numbers in baseball compared to uh, the NFL, it's it's different, but it's all there, right? And you can, you know, so I'm editing these people, assigning stories to them, and I'm just seeing kind of, you know, you see where the sort of revolution or whatever you want to call it, all these sports have gone through, right? But right. I, you know, played soccer my whole life, played in college, um, and you know, have just been a huge soccer fan my whole life and have had been doing some writing on the side. And, you know, so it's like, I'm writing, doing some writing for Grantland and it's like, so like, what am I, like, why are, why is there not a, why is soccer not moving toward, like, if I want to write about why this guy is such a fun, creative player to watch, there has to be some data I can put behind this. Right. And, right. you know, you kind of had, I kind of had this moment where it was like, no one's really writing in this way or there's a very small community of people that are writing in this way and like all the other sports it's like baseball like fully 100 percent all the way in to the point where like if you see a manager make a weird decision in a baseball game you should just assume that it's the right decision and there's like right there's <laughs> so much data on. behind it right rather than being like oh this you know i don't agree with cody bellinger not starting this game or whatever um and then kind of the NBA, you like while I was working at Grantland, like the Warriors were kind of taking over and the sort of value of the three-point shot was like becoming so important. Roy Hibbert went from like being this incredibly important NBA player to being like out of the NBA within two years. And then kind of the NFL, you see it starting to shift. So you see like the kind of same, uh, the same pattern occurring in each sport on different timelines, right? And so it's like, in my head, I'm like, this is just gonna happen with soccer, right? Like it's going to happen. Um, it's too competitive. There's too much money in it. And like the way things are being done in soccer are just kind of like the way they were being done in all these other sports with like scouting and kind of networking and sort of- a Agents, agents are probably yes. even more powerful in soccer yes. than even yes. in, agents in are, North American sports. Are way more powerful in soccer than they are in North American sports. Um, so there's all of that. And, you know, I don't want to, the word disruption just popped into my head, but I'm not going to Oh not yeah, don't, I just, I, I just, I, I just watched <laughs> uh, the, the Glass Onion last night. And I, like, yeah. I was like, oh man, the disruption. I'm like, I can't hear anyone say that word for like a month now. Yeah, well, now there's a, a rumor that uh, Elon Musk might be interested in buying Manchester United. So uh, <laughs> I guess, I guess times. better, I guess better Elon than than the Qataris. So I yeah, guess we'll, well I guess we'll settle with that. We're not gonna, we're not gonna, we don't need to <laughs> <laughs> pick between those two. But anyway, so I'm seeing this happen. So I start kind of writing, you know, using data where I can, just like basic stuff, right? Like chances created or like shots, right? Um, and then kind of over time, I see that like the like the process doesn't seem to be happening as quickly in soccer as it happens in these other sports. And more and more kind of public work starts to be done about soccer and kind of interesting things come out, like expected goals um, becomes a prominent stat. And then all these other sort of things about, you know, game state and um you know, just various little things that teach you a little more and more and more about each sport. And I think as I like learn more about the sport through like what objective information do we have out there to kind of put numbers on stuff, I realize like I actually don't, the more I've like learned through the analytics process, the less I realize I actually know about how soccer works and what matters on the, on the soccer field. So as I kind of, you know, I'm doing this writing, eventually I hit the point where it's like, yeah, I should like write a book about like, why isn't soccer, like, why is soccer so far behind all of the other sports, given, like, you just, like, we just said, Elon Musk and the Qatari suffering wealth fund want to own soccer teams, you know, there's but more there's, money there's in soccer than like, there is. Um, there's not like, like a baseball America or a fan graphs or whatever for soccer. Um, I, I would say the, 
like the average baseball fan, I would say is super in tune with the data and more and more NFL fans are super in tune with the data and every NBA fan. Like if you are seriously following the NBA at this point, you're like, you know, as Zach Lowe would say, the borps and the schmorps and everything. Yeah. But, but I would say your average American, I mean, American fans actually probably even less likely to know like XG or whatever, but like even, even European, like I'm going to, I take in a fair number of uh, like European related soccer content football content and very rarely in the course of like a 45 minute podcast recapping or previewing the games are they talking about like the xg the xg tape like it's just it's not even it's just doesn't really dominate the conversation oh i mean i (laughs) you know you watch a soccer game right and there's a a quote-unquote box score they'll show at halftime right it'll be like you get possession probably you get shots if you're lucky you get shots on target and then you get like fouls, corner kicks, yep, and like that's what they show. So I wrote an article for ESPN like last year, just about like this is a useless thing. Like why can't why can't we just do use a slight make a slightly better box score to like tell the story of the game, and then you pop that up on the TV, and maybe you kind of use some of that as you know ways to go off on what your talking points are going to be. And I, you know, the box score in baseball is like a sacred thing, right? They've they've been recording the same stats forever. So like, despite baseball being super advanced, like, you know, if if you were going to design a new box score today, it wouldn't be the baseball box score, right? But it has this place in baseball history. So it kind of stays there. So I'm writing this article. I'm like, no one cares about the soccer box score. And then I just like, I, at least, I would say at least 15 people sent me gifts of burning american flags in response to me writing this article just being like this is not how this works like stay out of our game kind of thing so it's not even like it's not even like there's a lack of uh knowledge about these potentially different ways of looking at the game it's like an active yeah like antagonism actively harsh which I guess is not, it's kind of gets us back to that point I was making. That was happening with baseball, right? There's There was the whole, you know, Joe Morgan versus dead spin situation. Um, and so like, it's all just like repeating itself in soccer. So long story short is like, I kind of felt like I had a little bit of like a time machine in seeing the battles that were going to happen in soccer. Um, and then I got to the point where I wrote about it enough. Things hadn't changed enough. I knew enough people where I had enough connections where I felt like there was kind of a book here that could kind of get into why these things haven't changed, but get more into kind of like the core question of like, how does soccer actually work, basically? And I think so many people are so resistant to analytics, specifically in soccer, even more so than in like sports that Europeans really care about, which is like cricket, rugby, golf type mm-hmm. stuff but North American sports, baseball, basketball, football, hockey, there's obviously a ton of randomness in football, ton of randomness in baseball, I guess less randomness in basketball, but still obviously a ton. It's just a ton of game to game, quarter to quarter, shot to shot variants. Um, but soccer is like the number one variant sport. I mean, it's just, it's a stone. It's just a variance fest, right? It's, it's, an events-based game, yeah, and that's something that, like, you know, proper football men have said for a hundred years. Goals, <laughs> goals change games, and they really, they, I mean, they, they really do. But, but there's one, data to back that up. <laughs> yeah, but one, one goal, one slip. Stephen Gerrard slip, right? I mean, that how much, like, it's just a this dude slipped on a on a, a piece of grass, you know, fifteen years ago or whatever, and it changed the course of his life, of Liverpool, of like, it just, it's, it's unbelievable, and I just think. One, we're obviously super uncomfortable. Just the idea that everything is like that everything in the universe is chaos and and unordered yeah. is an uncomfortable idea, anyways. But more so, it's that people see, oh, my team had three point eight xG, the other team had one point five xG, and they won. Instead of saying, oh, we got unlucky or we got lucky, it's xG is crap and doesn't understand rubbish the game. stat. It's like the the thing that like baffles me with that is like so xg should just match the score and then like then it would just defeat the purpose of having the stat like it seems like people like want it to match the score and it's like well like okay then just like look at the score (laughs) you know um but yeah i think it's like it's really hard to deal with randomness and when you watch sports 
right like you want i don't know everyone kind of wants some like you know if you win it's like you did something you know you did something more than who you were playing right and like i i think we're still like baseball obviously like again is like that sport is even even in baseball right like the dodgers are like the best team every year basically and they've won world one world series over the past basically decade over this period of dominance and i live in la and like you know the dodgers lost to the padres in the playoffs last year dodgers had won like 30 more games than the padres in the regular season and like people in la are just like what the hell is like wrong with this team like this team is built wrong yeah they're all they're all chokers the gms don't know what they're doing they're all chokers despite like being the same players that like won the world series uh, a couple years ago but like baseball coverage has essentially reached the point right where it's just like it's a crapshoot in the playoffs like there's this we have 162 games because it's so random on a game to game basis so it's a crapshoot in the playoffs but i think in the nfl and the nba i think still we're probably not that great at dealing with the randomness right like in an nba game how often is the are playoff games determined by who makes shots and who misses shots right we'd maybe i i you know i know there's like make or miss league hubie brown yeah and it's like okay so like ultimately whoever created the better shots played the better game right if you're gonna say that like it's a make or miss league um and i think there are some ways to probably determine shot quality i've seen some people um do some work yeah i think kevin pelton has well, maybe yeah, not, maybe uh, not Kevin Pelton, but someone Seth has Partnow, who, That's, uh, yeah, Seth who works for the athletic. Um, you know, but yet like a, a playoff game could be purely determined by shooting. And then, you know, the coverage is like purely based on the result. And then the NFL, there's the same thing, right? Like turnovers, um, the way a fumble bounces have, has a huge say in things, special teams. So I think we're not that great in dealing with in those sports either. But soccer is most at the whims of randomness in the way that you said in two ways right because it's so low scoring and then also the way the sport works is like there's only 38 games you know so like that's that's true too think of it this way right like the the celtics will lose to like the hornets right in in every season right like it, it always happens like good teams lose to bad teams the nba all the time right and you never like it's not like celtics media i mean maybe they do uh but there's not like a global meltdown or with the fan base when like they blow like one regular season game against a bad team. Right. Cause yeah, it's like, but, that but just Man- Manchester United loses to Burnley or, or Leeds <laughs> or something. And, and we, yeah. we have like an inquisition and the owners yeah. have to get sent out. Yeah, exactly. So it's like the structure of the season and then the way the sport works makes the randomness have an outsized effect on the result. And I, you know, I do under, I do like, Sometimes I feel like I'm just kind of like, like, do I want the media coverage to basically just be like, yeah, Manchester United won, but like they got outshot by like 15 by Leeds. Like, let's pump the brakes here. Um, I don't think I don't, you know, the audience probably isn't there for that. Right. Like, (laughs) I think people like having the kind of crisis, new team in crisis every week. We can feel totally different about our team week to week. I think there's something like, a feedback loop probably within the ecosystem um, with that as well. Yeah. Well, and I mean, that also does go like, again, in Europe, it like, we think we care a lot about like football and stuff here, but it's really not the same. It's like, it's just so imbued and especially it's like college football. I yes. It's, it's like college football, but if college football was somehow even bigger, like, like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, if like, if like the entire, country and not just states were were uh were involved i guess yeah yeah and you had the same players every year instead of (laughs) right instead of instead of new 19 year olds um okay so this is this is actually kind of related to the randomness which is i don't know shit about goalkeepers um and and analytics to me on goalkeepers seems it's like you know their shot stopping quality okay it kind of works how like um uh, like completion percentage over expectation and in, in football works where it's like, you know, the average quarterback makes this throw 60% of the time. And this guy makes it 70% of the time, but like, I'm, you know, I'm, I watch a lot of soccer, but I, I, in soccer is the one thing I sort of view as a fan. It's not really my job. I can just kind of mm-hmm. watch it and follow it. And I have no idea if just, for example, Hugo Lloris is actually this great goalkeeper who just makes the occasional mistake. Cause he does too much. Or if his teams, if France, 
or Spurs or whoever would get the exact same results if Alphonse Ariola or or Ilian Meslier was in there or whatever. I I have no clue. Um, so I think in some ways, shot stopping, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, there's like a Bill James quote about the difference between a 300 hitter and a 250 hitter is basically like a matter of record. There's no, you couldn't watch baseball for like a month and see a guy hit 300 and see a guy sure. hit 250 and, and understand the difference, right? Like it would just, they would seem basically the same player to you, but like, it's a huge difference statistically in the impact it has on your team. And I think goalkeeping, you kind of have to look at it in the same way, right? You can't know how good a keeper is just by watching the occasional game and being like, oh, that guy made like a couple of really cool, nice saves. You have right. to watch every single shot the keeper faces. And then, you know, they have, we have these models that um, account for where the shot ended up on the goal frame. Um, Statsbomb, um, the sort of consultancy and data company, they have the best model that also takes into account keeper positioning and they can kind of assess the positioning like whether the keeper is positioned in the optimal position to face the shot from this angle so you can take into account all of that and then you can basically see like okay the average keeper would concede x number of goals from these shots this keeper conceded this many what's the difference right um the issue with that is that's like insanely noisy on a season to season basis right like for example uh jose saw who's the keeper for um Wolves. wolverhampton was I think he led the league in goals saved over expectation last year. Um and now this season I'm looking it up just to just to verify make sure he hasn't um so he's saved seven goals over expectation last year. Now he's three below expectation this year. So right. like a 10 shot swing. So you need the issue with these things is you need to like get a lot you need of data. multiple yes you need multiple seasons. Um and then like you said there's still like the issue of well is it is he's playing with shitty defenders he wasn't playing with last year well, or, or not even not even like, crappy ones but just new ones that maybe their new center back doesn't speak portuguese so they don't know how to yeah. communicate with one another yeah and then there's like certain keepers are probably better at saving certain kinds of shots and maybe he was facing the shots he was good at saving last year and now he's facing let's say a lot of one v ones right and he's not good at that um so there's all kinds of complicating factors in that as well. But I think like looking at these kind of long-term stats, is it's a pretty, you, it's not a lot of, most of it isn't surprising, right? Like Allison is one of the best keepers in the world. Anyone who watches Liverpool plays knows that. Um, his numbers are great. Jan Oblak for Atletico Madrid was incredible for years. Hasn't been good the last year or two in Atletico are struggling a little bit. You know, Manuel Neuer, amazing shot-saving stats. Gianluigi Buffon, amazing shot-saving stats. So for the most part, like, it kind of matches up to the perception. But then you do get certain keepers who, who like Ederson at Man City, he's basically at best an average shot-stopper, if not slightly below average, which I think would probably surprise some people. So I think um, in some ways, judging shot-stopping is, like, the closest thing we have in soccer to, like, kind of these American style above expectation stats where you just kind of add them up and you have to like look at the whole body of work because like your brain is going to play tricks on you if you don't watch every single game the keeper plays but then even still there's complicating factors you can't just pick a keeper based on his shot saving stats and plug them in to a team that plays a totally different way because he might what? not be equipped to save those shots and then there's there's a question of like what about all the other stuff a keeper does I'm of the mind that like shot stopping is like 90%, 95% of the value a keeper um, provides and all the other stuff is kind of just tangential benefits. But, you know, I think there, there's a reasonable kind of conversation or argument to be had about that at least. Well, I mean, lots of, lots of coaches would, well, I, I guess it would depend on the coach, right? Uh, Pep. Well, that's why like, Ederson's on Man City. <laughs> you know, yeah. Pep's probably less concerned with his shot stopping than his ability to play like an 80 yard diagonal ball, like to a guy's foot. Yeah. And, and, and there's sort of like, I've also heard, I've also heard this argument that like a great way to judge defensive players, especially from leagues where like the data is not that good. Like, you know, you, I, I, someone just signed like a, a Czech defender or something like from the Czech league. And I saw this going mm -hmm. around, like, just see how many goals his team is giving up relative to average, like, or, or even per shot or whatever. And if this, 
if when this center back or this goalkeeper is out there and shots are going in at a lower rate, it either means they're forcing guys into bad shooting positions or they are, you know, doing shot blocking to whatever, just they're doing something that is preventing high quality shots from going in. Yeah. And I mean, you could like, you could take expected goals and look at the shots a guy's blocking, right? And be like, oh, this defender blocked like three expected goals worth of shots, which I think is potentially interesting. But then you get into the question of like, well, does a good defender prevent the shot from happening in the first place, <laughs> right? Than having to be making a last ditch stop on it. Um, but I think your point is generally right. Like, I think that there's, you know, a lot of times with soccer, we can kind of lose uh the forest for the trees and be like wow this defender looks great but then the team you're signing him from is just a terrible defensive team so like that should raise some alarm that... bells or same thing with like attackers right like maybe this guy's goal scoring stats aren't amazing but like he has been like playing 90 percent of the minutes for a very good attacking team for four years maybe he's like contributing in all these other ways so i think um you know that that's a, a another kind of aspect of all this yeah i mean i i think that that sort of hits on the number one thing about soccer annex, which is, you know, golf, it's solved, hit the ball, hit the ball further. Every, every yard you can add is, is good. Uh, the, the data definitively shows that American football, throwing the ball gets you more yards, more points than running the ball. Baseball, you want, you want home runs, optimizing for home runs over everything else. Basketball, three is bigger than two. I mean, you can, you can pretty much summarize what you need to be doing as a team in like a paragraph to to anyone i mean that is not true of soccer at all even even amongst even like taking away like how you would make up you know if you're a brentford or whatever you need to make up a budget disparity even amongst psg Bayern munich manchester city liverpool whoever they they all play differently um and 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 all use data and all use it in a different fashion which i actually think is as the optimization like baseball is like kind of unwatchable the way they play it yes. now and a lot of people a lot of people feel that way about basketball too i don't feel that way but a lot of people think the threes and dunks only is actually not enjoyable and a lot of a lot of boomers don't like watching teams throw 70 percent of the time either um and i think that's kind of interesting for soccer as an entertainment product because they will never be that way you'll you will like pep guardiola and jurgen klopp would just they would agree on like 70% of things. And then the other 30% of things they could sit at dinner for six hours and argue, and they would never find one segment of, of common ground because the analytics that there's no, there's no one way to play soccer. I think. Yeah. <clears throat> That's kind of a, one of the nice things about writing this book and having I'm writing the book having seen what's happened in all the other sports. So I can kind of keep referring to that and bounce, bounce off of that. And then you make the good point of ball. You're right. I, I think it's, it's way it's worse to watch the ball is in play less often, which feels like a pretty big issue for a sport, right? Yes. Basketball. Um, I'm not going to come out and defend like matter of perspective. I Knicks think versus bulls uh, from 1995 or whatever. But I will say that I do watch games and sometimes I'm like, I don't know who played the better game. Like I, like I was saying earlier about the shot stuff, NFL, I think it's like drastically better, but I guess we'll see. But with soccer, soccer, you're right. Um, You know, for example, I think kind of the two teams that are other than Liverpool who are kind of going through a transition phase with the ownership of the team in the front office, I think Brentford and Brighton are the two like most like there's a top-down mandate to use analytics basically um they're both owned by former or former sports betters and so they're both having really good seasons they're both top half of the table teams from under underlying numbers and an actual numbers perspective but um like brighton have i'm looking it up 59 percent possession in their matches brentford have 43 percent and yet these are teams that are both using analytics in a very extreme and, and, and have similar, way. similar money to spend too is, yeah, is a big yeah. part of it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so they're coming at it from completely different ways, which I think is, is fascinating and at least bodes well for the future of the sport as this stuff starts to become more um, ingrained in the game. Um, 
But I think, you know, so if you want to take the lessons from all the other sports are like uh, essentially be more aggressive, right? Like that's kind of yeah the the general story. I mean, I guess you could argue that the baseball like don't bunt and don't steal. I mean, I guess don't steal isn't really a thing, but I guess probably less stealing than Te- there used teams, to be. Teams don't really do it because the value of losing the out is you, you yeah. lose more than you can gain. So you could argue those are aggressive strategies, stealing and bunting. I would argue that they're not because um, they're, you know, hitting a home run, trying to hit a home run in exchange for striking out more often seems like more of an aggressive thing to me. And same with strikeouts, trying to strike batters out. Um, and then obviously the other sports are also, those are more aggressive strategies. And so what you were saying about Klopp and Pep, completely different styles, but they're both very aggressive styles at their core. And they try yeah. to optimize having the ball up near the other team's goal, leaving a ton of space in behind your defense, but figuring out ways to deal with preventing the balls getting in behind your defense and then dealing with um, the fallout from the balls getting in behind your defense. Right. And, and there are, I mean, there are a couple things that I see that I think are different than it would. I mean, even from when I started watching like five, six, seven years ago, um, even, I mean, we just said like, right. Like even teams that are lower down the pyramid, having the ball a bit more, not just, not just hooping. I mean, look at the championship right now. You've got, you've got Burnley with yeah. Vincent company as the manager. And they're like, you know, they're playing ticky tacka and, and passing the ball. Yeah, passing the ball in the back of that, which is, I mean, it's just insane to think about like the the Daishian style football. But then I, you know, at the same time, you do have Sean Daish who just got hired by Everton and, and basically turned them around in, in a matter of weeks. So it's, you know, the, the hoof ball can still work. But the, the thing that is universally, no team does this anymore. Uh, I like to think of it as the Ross Barkley, just the, you're 30 yards away from goal. You're completely <laughs> out of ideas and you just strike it. <laughs> at at loosely at the net i mean i you just ne- you just really don't see it i mean every once in a while you know a a, a messy coutinho you know james ward like like a true creative hub of a team a kevin de bruyne they can do it but if like you know if, if rodri hits a screamer that doesn't come close or whatever pep is going to be like losing his mind on yeah. the sideline that's one of the huge changes well there's a funny so when um, Manchester City beat Liverpool by a point in 2018, 2019, they won a game kind of right at the end against Leicester on a Vincent company, their center back. Screamer. Yeah. And there's the sto- there's a story. Uh, <laughs> there's a story that um, Pep Guardiola tells. He's just like, in his head, he's like, no, don't shoot, don't shoot. Everyone on the team is essentially like, this is a terrible idea. Please don't shoot. And they're all like, in their head as as he's winding up they're like are you kidding me like we can keep passing the ball and work it into a better area and then it ends up in the upper corner and it essentially won them the league because it got them two extra points and they won the league by a point so that that is accurate and the data does show the average shot distance is getting progressively closer and closer to the goal every season i don't think that's like purely it i think that's more of like an ambient awareness of analytics thing rather than like Rather than just being the, like, the this guy. is XG, you know, here's the XG map and here are all the values, you know. Um, but it is funny because fans are still screaming at midfielders when they to, to get on the ball. Yeah. Um, I, I saw a story, I don't know, a month you ago. You should be so. screaming at the fans of the, when the other team has the ball 30 yards out from your goalie, you should start screaming shoot to try to convince the opponent to shoot is what fans should be doing. Well, I saw one at one of these championship teams, they had, they, they distributed like flyers or said something over the PA or something, basically telling the fans, stop telling the players to shoot because <laughs> you're getting, you're getting in their head and it's, you know, it's, it's messing them up. And we don't, the goal the goal is, is to get, is to not be taking, you know, yeah. Mark, Mark Albright and just total wander balls from 30 <laughs> yards out, which is, you know, I mean, there's a pretty great moment whenever one of those, I, even when it draws a save, it's like one of those where you're like, oh man, that was, that was like a, we did a, a really uh, cool moment. When I was at the ringer, we did a piece on the premier league posted like goals of the month from like 2006 or something. They put this was in 2016. They posted on Twitter, like throwback to one of the best 
best uh, months of goals we've ever seen. And it's just all like Michael Essien um, just ripping these shots that are like bending like 20 yards outside of the post and into the upper corner. And, you know, I remember watching that and this is kind of way before I wrote this book and being like, yeah, like that is not, we might get one of those a month. And I think we probably only are getting like five of them a year, you know? Um, So even if you go back and watch, just search random year, mid aughts, late nineties, Premier League goals of the month, you'll, the goals are just so different from the goals you're seeing scored today. Now, probably all the goals of the month are like it, it showcases, you know, all these beautiful passes and, uh, yeah. you know, a, a fullback winning it from a forward, running really fast, laying it off to the midfielder, getting it tapped back, and then the fullback, yeah. you know, crossing to the forward at the far post and the far, you know, just tapping it in. Yeah. Or a guy like slaloming through three people in the box and then, you know, putting it through the keeper's legs rather than um, uh, the, 40 yard one in a hundred finish. So the other thing that I was thinking is like, you know, a little, a lot of this stuff is like, yeah, you can control for everything. Even if you like, so perfect world or, or controlled world or whatever. And you just, you, you know, stats, but Ted Knudsen and everyone at stats, I'm like, okay, you get to run arsenal or whatever. And you get to Mm -hmm. hire the coach and you get to set the formation and buy the players, you know, they're at a certain level. Soccer is so, I mean, we're just talking about it. It's such a game of spontaneity and immediate reaction and like proprioception and everything. And I wonder if one of the next big waves and trends is going to be spending even more than clubs like Manchester City and Liverpool and this stuff on youth academy players and on teenagers. I mean, we've seen Real Madrid just bought a, a Brazilian kid, Eldrick, for like, 35 million dollars or something yeah. at 16 which is Vinicius insane. jr and rodrigo were both bought at really young ages really no one young. really knew who they are for a lot of money but it, it makes sense because if you have these literal children in your building you're gonna have so much more input into when this kid gets in the situation i mean there's basically been a whole book written about this the mario goats have finished against argentina mm-hmm. how that finish was actually built in a lab 10 yep. years earlier and it actually totally makes sense because in a reaction-based sport, you don't want these guys to be thinking, but you do want them to be doing what they've been taught. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that's kind of the whole the whole Red Bull idea of having this network of clubs throughout the world, having a very specific playing style, and you get these guys that you think fit the rough physical parameters, I guess, and then you just train them in this in this kind of chaotic way where they're able to produce a lot of turnovers and then they're better able to react in these moments of chaos to the chaos than their opponents. Right. Um, so I think that that's, that's a good point. Um, depending on the team, obviously, you know, that the resources you have as a team, right. Can yeah. Harder, harder Man- for Luton, harder for Luton town to do yeah, that. Than harder for United. Brentford to even do it than Man U to have a, you know, they have a satellite, multiple satellite clubs throughout the world. So they are kind of doing it in a way, but you're right. But then it's still very hard to like, I think there's Barcelona kind of like skewed everyone's perception of what a youth Academy actually is. Um, like their youth Academy, produced like the core of arguably the greatest soccer team of all time while like for the most part good youth academies for the top teams are producing players that go and play for like mid-table teams throughout europe because like like someone was telling me this about liverpool they were talking to me about how much they feel like liverpool's like biffed their youth development meanwhile liverpool's like produced a ton of premier league players that just don't play for liverpool and the issue is when you're one of like the six best teams in the world, it's really hard. It's hard to, to get a starter. Yeah. So like the fact that Trent Alexander Arnold grew up in Liverpool and is now like one of the best right backs in the world is kind of just like a miracle. Right. It, 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 um, yeah, it is. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like, you know, you can't like Messi is not Spanish. I mean, I think that probably like kind of yeah. gets forgotten. It's like they had to go and find him. He wasn't like Messi was not immaculately conceived in Barcelona. Yeah. And like, not almost none of what Barcelona accomplished happens without Messi. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like um I think that's potentially a reason why teams, you know, 
the payoff of getting the guy onto your team is probably not there, but I guess the downside is like, oh, you're producing a bunch of guys that are good enough to play for Aston Villa or that you can sell for million dollars. Yeah, and get into get in line with financial fair play or whatever. Um, yeah, I guess I guess either. yeah, that's a that's a whole that's a whole other part of analytics having having the best cheating. I mean, how yeah. much money is that worth? It's, it's well, worth, uh, yeah, it's worth work a lot. For the Astros. Yeah. Um, okay. So last thing, there's this great chapter in your book about midfielders and midfielders are, are actually like a very foreign concept for American sports. There's no real analog. Um, Cause it's like your job to do everything right. They're, like there's not a ton of two way, like, I guess it would be like a really good midfielder is like uh, LeBron James when LeBron really cared about playing defense or something. And, and there's this chapter, there's this anecdote about Sergio Busquets, which, which is very fascinating because he's the sort of guy that both real intense data nerds and proper football men, that handshake emoji, right? They're both like the data nerds are like, no one on earth is, you know, more, uh, more pressures per defensive action or more forward passes from that position than him. And the proper football guys are like, no one understands how hard it is the job that he does at the base of that midfield. Um, Whereas you you turn on a Barcelona game a year, two, three, four, five years ago. You literally might not notice him the whole game. I mean, you he a whole game could go by, and I'd be and you'd be like, "What did he do?" And like, I don't know. He was there for <laughs> he was there for sure, which is kind of fascinating. But I'm more curious about who do you think these guys are now? Who do you think the 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 Ballon de Busquets players are now? <laughs> these guys who are you know obviously we all know. Mbappe and Messi and I guess not Ronaldo anymore. I guess it's Holland now. But I, I had a, I had a couple ideas, but I was wondering what you thought. Yeah, so I, I I think it's interesting. Like I'm still like when I was talking about the more I learn about how the sport works, the less I feel like I understand it. Um, like with Busquets, all of what you said is true. But then take you know go back five minutes to what I said about Messi, right? And it's like do we speak about Busquets in the same way if Messi isn't on Barcelona? <laughs> probably not. Right. Yeah. Probably and then, not. And then there's, you know, what if they just had like an average, a La Liga average defensive midfielder playing there Would their results have been like any different in the, in the long run. Well, you know, some, I think Pep would probably say no, Pep, Pep would yeah. probably say actually, no, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have worked that way, but other people yeah. probably would say stick Francis Coughlin back there. They probably figure it out. <laughs> Yeah, um, and uh, there's a famous quote from Vicente del Bosque who coached Spain, and it's, um, you know, you watch the game, you don't see Busquets, but if you watch Busquets, you see the whole game, which I think sure. is a very, very, uh, very soccer quote. Um, yeah, but also it is. like a good people. A good way people to just... love these these uh, Yogi Berra, uh, you know, yes. style axioms about soccer for sure. Yeah, there's no Yogi Berra in soccer because like everyone tries to be Yogi Berra, basically. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah, so so it's interesting, right? Because it's like I don't know, sort of this Red Bull style, more pre- more aggressive pressing and kind of more vertical passing is becoming more of a prominent thing. And so within that style, I feel like all the midfielders kind of become more prominent players, right? Because they're kind of breaking up play more often. They're kind of making more ambitious passes more often. So there's almost like, in some ways, there's like less of a way to be a midfielder and stand out and affect the game like a yeah you know the Shane Battier no stats all-star type player kind of thing but I mean to me like this is such a cop-out but like Rodri on Manchester City to me is the obvious one even though he's literally just playing essentially the modern Busquets role and he's Spanish and he plays for Pep Guardiola yeah but like Rodri has Bays, plays basically every minute of every game for Man City. So like you look at Man City's points and their underlying numbers, they're on like one of the hottest, probably the best run of any team in the history of the Premier League in terms of their consistent excellence. And he's been the most prominent player during all that. He's always been on the field, right? And I don't think he was in the top 20 in Bellendor voting this past year. Right. So in some ways we're like just repeating the same thing with Rodri, but almost like to a more extreme degree, because you don't even hear people talk about Rodri in the same way they talked about Busquets, right? The you really like if you really know that you, if you, you know gotta ball, be you, you know. gotta if you really you gotta really know ball to to get yeah. to to get to Rodri as a functional part of Manchester City's yeah. success. But then at the same time, I'm not gonna argue for Rodri as like 
more important than Kevin De Bruyne or like uh, you know Phil the Raheem Sterling over Manchester City's success. But you said you had some some suggestions as heirs to the Busquets ideal. So the 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 guy who left out immediately to me is Kieran Trippier, who plays for a top four team that has not spent any. I mean, obviously Newcastle has all the money. They just haven't spent all of it yet. You know, it's like uh, Almiron, I think they got for like 12 million from Atlanta United, which is just a hilarious sentence. Uh, now, Joel Tin <laughs> costs a bunch of money. Uh, Bruno Grimoresh costs a bunch of money. But they, they kind of have this mix of like old shitty Newcastle players like the Longstaff brothers <laughs> and, and Dan Byrne and stuff. But if you look at their chance creation and, and their heat maps and stuff, it's all like either get it out for a corner so Tripp can put the ball in or get it out. And because Dan Byrne is basically a center back. So he just hangs back. It's kind of like what Liverpool should do, but they have they have Trent and Robertson and want them both getting up. But Trent would actually probably do really well with Dan Byrne on the other flank because his defensive yeah. responsibilities would be less. But I mean, even if you look at something as simple as like who scored average rating, Kieran Trippier's top 20 in the world, which is like, that would be shocking to most people he's got like he's he's got a bunch of both actual assists and expected assists and i just i think he is probably newcastle's best player and no team is outperforming their preseason expectation in in the premier league more than newcastle right now yeah i like that one a lot i did a premier league all-stars piece um and i actually i think i said he was him and holland were the two easiest like no controversy yeah, he's really he's really been that good which is crazy because he's not even that fast either for his position which you would think is a prerequisite yeah and it's like okay so newcastle are like they're in fourth right now but underlying numbers they're the clear third best team in the league which is like absurd because they were a relegation team before eddie howe got hired so you can you can award some of that to eddie howe but then you look at all the you have to you should then look at all the players they brought in right because the players win games i feel like that is another thing that gets lost in soccer analysis a lot of the time um in a really frustrating way but and you know like you said most of the players they brought in are like they upgraded from like relegation level players to average premier league to, players to, to, to like a dan burn yeah. yeah dan burn type is an average Premier League player joe willick um that's still not enough to make you the third best team in the league so like something has to be happening al Marone was already there um callum wilson was already there uh bruno gimaraish is obviously making a difference um but again that he's a midfielder so like I, I wonder if maybe <laughs> I wonder if maybe Nick Pope is really good. I wonder if that's I wonder if that's part of it because uh, no, he, he, he he's one of the new newer parts of it too. Yeah, he's saving more goals than average, um, for sure. So there's that. But even still, I don't think the keeper can drive that much of performance. So when you kind of think of it that way, I think you're right. Like I think Trippier is probably the biggest driver behind. If you had to pick one reason for why Newcastle are as good as they are. Obviously, there is no one reason that I think he's probably. And I think I think reason. he he got a red card, and I think they got one point in the three games he missed. I I want to say it's like well, which is again not fair because his backup is uh, Javi Manquillo, I believe, who is like just an all time you know EPL bench player, like yeah. been around forever, will be around forever, and will never contribute to winning at all. Um, yeah. yeah. So well, that's that, the other that thing with soccer. Guy. It's when you're trying to like assess the value of these players, right? Like, like for example, Manu. Um, so it's like impossible because of the they don't they don't play the same way. It's, it's yeah, impossible. we don't know how good any of the players they're replacing are either, right? Like, or there's not like a consistent level of replacement player across each team, right? Like, so it does seem like Manchester United, their numbers are not really that good this year, despite them quote unquote being in the title race, according to some um, people, but they do seem better. And they did sign Casemiro from Real Madrid. So you can be like, Oh my God, Casemiro has had this amazing impact, but it's like, is it because Casemiro is like the greatest defensive midfielder in the world? Or is it because like the guys he was replacing were like not even close to being good enough. More like horribly incompetent. Yeah, yeah. And while, so anyone, any like decent midfielder would have made a difference. I, I uh, kind of think he might be the greatest defensive midfielder in the world. I, that it's because 
I mean, we were just talking about how important that possession is. And everyone else on the team looks more competent now, like like Luke Shaw and Fred. Like Fred being a playable <laughs> Premier League midfielder is like a huge upset because he was like the 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 McFred, the, the McTominay Fred midfield is like one of the worst top four, theoretically, midfields that I've seen in my time watching the game. Like they couldn't do anything together. Yeah, it's not one of the worst. It, it's easily the worst. Yeah, it's say. really bad. Yeah. Uh, all right. I mean, there we go. We we got we got through it. Um, the book. Uh, wait, wait. Why don't you do? Why don't you do your? Uh, you got to the end of this conversation. We didn't. We really didn't spoil much from the book. So if you enjoyed this, what no. else can people look for? Uh, in inside the book. Yeah, I mean, inside the book, there's uh some stuff about the good. Really, I think detailed stuff from person who now is a part owner of AC Milan in Italy and kind of his approach to running a soccer team after working in the NBA. There's a full chapter on Jesse Marsh, who's recently been fired, but I think probably by the time this is published, may, may be the manager of Southampton. Yeah. I, I thought he already was officially hired. Yeah. Um, so if you want to learn more about him yeah, and his kind so, of theory, so we'll theory of the sport and kind of kind of connects back to the aggression of, sorry. Um, he, my dog was great until right until the end. Um, he, want, he, want, he wants to know, he wants people to know that if you buy this book, you will be supporting him. There's a chapter about the sort of first person to try to use data analysis in soccer in the sixties and seventies. Uh, and then there's a ton of like if you're not even if you're not a big soccer fan, like I said, I come at this from an American sports um, lens, and I I'm constantly referring to American sports throughout. You know how these ideas can be sort of shown through the prism of baseball, football, basketball, how the things compare. And half the people in the book that I talked to worked in a different sport <laughs> um, before they got into soccer. So yeah, I, I think it's a uh, yeah, I, I think it's um, it'll help you think about soccer in a different way. But I also think it's not like a, there's one chart in the book. You know, it's mainly stories about people behind the ideas. Um, so I think it's a pretty ends up being a pretty readable book as well, despite it having the I, phrase analytics revolution in the title. Well, and that, I mean that's uh, that's what we all want out of our out of our nonfiction. We just we want yeah. we want some good stories. Uh, I can confirm, not too many charts, mostly very good stories. If you enjoyed uh, any of our shows with Jonathan Wilson, Michael Cox, any of these guys, very uh, similar uh, similar story materials, similar characters. You'll know a lot of the characters, but these will be new stories and uh, told in a fresh way. So if you guys all purchase that book and enjoy reading it. And we'll be back next week. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.